The hiatus is over. We've recharged the batteries in just in time for the start of Major League Rugby. Hold on to your hats. The ARN podcast is back. Fine day to you all, and a happy new year. It's been a little while. Uh, today is Thursday, January 24th. I'm Brian Ray of America's Rugby News. I wish I could tell you that I'm well-rested, but there's really no time for sleep in this business. Most of all, right now, it's just been, these last few weeks, just mayhem. Uh, a lot has happened in the rugby world since our last show a month or so back. Today, though, is a special episode dedicated to the start of Major League Rugby season number two. I have not one, not two, but three great guests today. If you are an MLR fan, stick around. You're going to enjoy this one. I mean, who isn't an MLR fan? What a silly thing to say. Uh, This is a big year in the Americas, and it's only getting bigger. Next year, we could have a South American Pro League as well. Plans for the Liga Americana are well underway. It looks like one team in Santiago, Chile, one in Asuncion, Paraguay, uh, two near Montevideo in Uruguay, two in Brazil, at least one of those in Sao Paulo, and two in Argentina. Uh, Tucumán and Cordoba look like the front runners right now. Rosario also interested. So we'll see what happens. Uh, and speaking of South America, before we head full steam into MLR, a quick word for Chile who won the Sudamerica Rugby 7 Series just a couple weeks ago. First place in both the Punta del Este and Viña del Mar 7s tournaments, uh, and really an impressive performance. Uh, Felipe Brangier, the captain, outstanding. You know, they beat an Argentina side that was pretty much full strength at Punta. So they will play in the Las Vegas and Vancouver tournaments coming up in March, and they'll also play in the core qualifiers at Hong Kong in a probably favorites or at least one of those to qualify for, for core status for, for next season. Of course, the HSBC 7 Series returns this weekend in Hamilton, New Zealand. The USA have had an incredible start to the season. They're in first place overall after two tournaments Here's Madison Hughes. I think it's about improving those small things. I think if we look back at both those finals, uh, we did things that dropped those games. And fair credit to New Zealand and Fiji, they're both really good teams. Um, We have areas where we're like, okay, if we sharpen up these points, uh, then we think we can get that one extra game. Um, I think we start out really strongly defensively. I think we've always had good attack. We've got such good threats. Perry Baker, Colin Isles, Martin Yosefo, guys who, when you put them one-on-one, they're, they're going to make something happen. But I think the consistency of our defense and just doing that game after game uh, has really been strong so far, and we need to make sure we're continuing to build on that. And in case you're out of the loop on this one, the top four teams from this year's circuit automatically qualify for the 2020 Olympics. So if the USA keeps playing like this, Canada's chances of getting through the regional qualifier go up exponentially. Remember, it's only North America that they're competing against. So Canadian fans, if you're not already, get on the USA hype train. Uh, Canada is 12th overall right now. They've got some injury problems, but they get two key guys back this weekend, Mike Fuilafau and Phil Berna. And there's also two new caps in this side, Brock Webster and Cole Davis. So here's head coach Damien McGrath. Brock Webster has been outstanding since we brought him uh, over to Langford in September. He he went with Kingsley down to South America with the 15s to have a look. 
he's he, he came here as a sevens player and his sevens performances so far have been so good that I, I really feel I, I need to take him on one of these trips. Cole Davis has got 15s experience, he's already got test caps. Um, he was outstanding down in South America and he brings that, that je ne sais quoi to, you know, he, he, he's not um, predictable, he's strong, he's quick, he's agile and I'm looking forward to seeing him perform um, down under. Even more exciting is bringing back two players um, with experience to the group. They've been out, particularly Phil, for such a long time. It's almost 12 months since uh, Phil played. He's he's an exciting player and um, I've got high hopes for him and I don't want to put too much pressure on him because it's been such a long time out. Mike Fullifow has been a mainstay of the Sevens team, particularly since I've been here. Um, and to have him back, his experience, he brings that um, that rugby uh, IQ that, that very few players have on the World Series, so I'm looking forward to seeing him back as well. Argentina are in eighth spot overall, and I'm interested to see how Bautista Escura does with the Aguares this year because, you know, he was really an outstanding sevens player. So if he's still kind of floating around the periphery for the Aguares and the Pumas, maybe it's best if he concentrates on sevens through the Olympics to kind of help them out a bit. And, and speaking of the Aguares, they have a brand new captain for this season, Geronimo de la Fuente. He takes over from Pablo Matera. So that's three captains in three years. Of course, Gus Creevy was the captain for the first two seasons. Um, I like de la Fuente. I think he's a good choice. Very consistent player, level-headed inside center. Uh, I think the referees will prefer his approach to Creevy, who's a, a little more animated. Uh, the Aguares are actually playing Uruguay tonight in Montevideo, Los Terros getting ready for the uh, America's Rugby Championship, and we'll talk more about that tournament next week. Um, the Argentina 15 played Chile yesterday. Not really much to talk about there. Not a particularly exciting game. Pretty easy win, as expected, for Argentina. Uh, Chile trying out uh, an interesting player at number eight. Uh, Jaden Lang actually went to Davenport University. He's from Australia. Huge guys, but 6'1", 265-ish. Um, pretty mobile. He played prop and center for Davenport, but they're trying him at number eight. I don't think the experiment really worked. Probably going to end up back at, uh, I would say probably prop, but you know, maybe he'll get a look as a crash ball center. We'll see. Uh, but en enough of that for now. Major league rugby is the news of the day. 16 weeks season ahead. And it's going to be extra special for Canadian fans. History will be made on Saturday when the Toronto Arrows play the NOLA Gold in New Orleans. Canada finally with a professional rugby team. And who better to talk about that than one of the big Arrows signings from the offseason. Canadian international Mr. Dan Moore joins us now from Toronto. So thanks for your time, Dan. You got a, a really big week ahead. A, a landmark achievement really in, in Canadian rugby. Um, but... You know, it's it's about minus 15 Celsius. It's about five Fahrenheit for those Americans out there. When I look out the window, there's like blowing snow. It's, it's not exactly rugby weather. Does it does it feel strange to be preparing for a rugby game when it's when it's freezing outside in Canada? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a good point, Brian. There is uh, a lot of sort of drastic change between the temperatures we'll be going through. I mean, firstly, thank you so much for for having me on today and, and letting me um, you know, represent represent the arrows as we as we get into our first game here. Um, you know, as you said, there is a, a drastic change in, in temperature, but, um, you know, it's just another thing that I think we're looking forward to, uh, uh, the challenge of it and something that we can try and overcome as a team. I um, mean, you know, we were actually lucky enough to spend the majority of last week out on the West coast 
in Victoria with the uh, the Canadian Centre of Excellence. Um, and so, you know, the the change from Victoria to, to Louisiana will be uh, slightly less than than to down there, but um, you know, we we'll be looking forward to getting into some of the heat down there and hopefully putting together a, a great performance. Right. So, I mean, you guys have been cooped up inside pretty much from the get-go, you know, training in a field house, even down in New York at the uh, the Buffalo Bills field house as well. Uh, so Victoria would have been your, your first action outside, really. I mean, does it feel weird to be practicing indoors all the time, you know, especially with you coming back from, from England, you know, having to kind of switch gears like that? Um, you know, I think uh, before I was you know, ever went to the West Coast or, or to, um, to England, uh, you know, the Blues had always been training, you know, from early January uh, to prep for our CRC season. So it really wasn't something, um, you know, that I think the guys aren't, aren't familiar with. Maybe it feels a, a little bit strange, but, you know, at the, time, at, at the same time, I think we have all the facilities here that we really need to, to prep for a rugby game, no matter what the conditions are. Um, you know, and, and get, being able to, to go out to the West Coast last week and play outside and, and uh, you know, play with full dimensions, etc., um, was is I think you know going to hopefully bode us boded well for for this week, but then uh, you know furthermore for the rest of the season. So, do you have a regular home base like where, where you're training, or is it, or are you moving around in different spots? I you know I saw you, you guys are at uh, I think it was one of the gyms in Burlington or something, just doing some indoor stuff. Uh, but for your main like field stuff, do you have a, a, a regular field house that you guys are at normally? Yeah, so I mean, we basically have two locations that we really that we really work out of. Um, there's a dome in in Burlington at, at Sherwood Forest Park uh, that we play at on Mondays, um, and then the rest of the we're training in in the Whitby Dome. So, um, you know, there there is a little bit of moving around, but um, you know, the facilities have been great up to this point, um, and we have the space and everything we really need to to put in the hard yards and and get prepared for the season. I'm looking back at at, at kind of your career for a minute. You know, October 2015, you're playing in the McCormick Cup final with, you know, Bruce Gage and the Bombay Beach, all those guys. And now, you know, three years and change later, uh, you know, assuming Mr. Silverthorne uh, throws you in the, the lineup against New Orleans this coming weekend. So uh, by this time on Sunday, you'll be recovering from the, the first ever rugby union match involving a Canadian team in a professional competition. Um, you know, how does that sound to you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly exciting. I think, uh, you know, that was really what drew me to, to coming home from, from overseas to play um, was the fact that there's an opportunity in my hometown to, to play professional rugby, to represent, um, you know, this city, but also more broadly the province and, and to a certain degree, um, you know, the country in terms of, of the MLR. So uh, incredibly exciting opportunity. I think if, if you got to spend, you know, a day in, in our environment with the Arrows, you would really feel that uh, that energy and I'd say appreciation of the opportunity that the boys have have in front of us. Um, the fact that you can actually make a living and and you know sort of chase your dream full time is something that um, you know wasn't around for for all of us for for the last number of years. Um, and now that we're we're kicking off with this you know fantastic opportunity um, that, that we have in front of us, we we just want to make the most of it. So it's uh, it's incredibly exciting and, and you know big weekend for the club. So hopefully we can. Uh, we can start off on the right foot. You're right. I mean, you're from Toronto, you know, and most of the team really, you know, there's a sprinkling of accents, but most of the team is, is Canadian and, and quite a few, you know, local players, Mike Shepard's from Brampton, Moonlight's from, from Pickering, um, you know, and you'll be playing, I mean, four games at, at Lamport, which is right down King West in Toronto. I mean, did you ever think that was going to happen so soon? 
I, you know, I think a bunch of guys really hoped it would or, or sort of dreamed it would. Um, you know, big credit to to Bill Webb and, and to Mark Winokur for really doing um, you know all sorts of, of work uh, to make this dream a reality for for all the players on the team and, and hopefully rugby fans uh, both across the city and, and across the province. Um, so you just really to the, to their hard work where the credit should go in terms of um, making this comp- this team actually come to fruition. Um, you know, in a season that that uh, rugby fans in in Canada can really get behind. So you personally. Um have kind of an interesting story and, and you made some, some interesting career decisions along the way. And, and, and for you, that kind of means more than, than just rugby wise, you know, you were doing quite well at, at Birch Hill working in, in private equity. And so financially speaking, the whole rugby thing is a bit of a, a step down, but you know, you, you said in other, other interviews, you want to take a shot at the world cup. Uh, you'd been a regular in the team. You, when you broke in that ARC was at February, 2016, uh, you were pretty much a regular through to, the World Cup qualifiers in mid-2017. Um, I, I kind of expected you to turn pro then, but instead you actually went to Oxford. So why did you make that choice at that time? You know, was it was it ever in your mind that that choosing to go to Oxford might negatively affect your, your international rugby career? Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, firstly, I think, you know, I've, I'm very lucky in, in the fact that you know, I have big dreams both for for my athletic career and then also professionally um, when rugby's done. And I think you know right now I'm sort of uh, recognizing that there's there's a time for both. There's certain things that that my body can't do in five years that it, it can now. Um, and so now is the time to focus on those those rugby and, and athletic dreams. Um, you know, part of the 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 draw to Oxford University is um, was one well you know sort of world class academics. Um, being able to sort of surround yourself with with individuals, um, you know, that can help you learn a different perspective on the world. Um, you know, I, I was in a class of just over 300 people, but represented 60 countries around the world. Um, and I think I got a ton of value from just hearing how my classmates view different, you know, business problems or, or even more broadly sort of world scale problems. Um, but a big draw of, of Oxford University for me as well was was the fantastic rugby program that they have there. Um, there's a you know a lot of Canadian rugby fans wouldn't know it, but but UK rugby fans know of the varsity match uh, that's played between Oxford and, and Cambridge University, uh, really the mecca of, of rugby in the Northern Hemisphere, played at Twickenham. Um, and the game I was in, there was you know, 30,000 fans watching. Um, and although our season is a bit strange in the fact that it's almost binary on just one game you know what is the outcome of, of that Cambridge game that you play in um, the rest of the schedule is full of um, you know championship uh, we, we played uh, Bristol's championship team in, in the lead up to the United Cup um, you play a couple A-level or A-league teams from the Premiership so you're playing really good rugby talent week in week out um, and I think that was something that it offered uh, you know, differently from maybe the west coast of Canada. You know, I was very lucky to to be part of the centralized program with Rugby Canada, which I thought was great. Um, but you know, to a certain degree, you probably don't play as many games as as we would like to in that program. And so I thought, you know, Oxford was that combination of um, something for for my future and, and an amazing academic experience, but also from a rugby perspective. Uh, you know, a really high quality environment that I could continue to develop as a player. And, you know, I think the example of that was uh, Canada played uh, Oxford in, in the build up to their repechage competition. And, you know, even though some of those players are a little bit younger and, and have fairly 
um, you know, significant academic demands at, at even an undergrad level. Some of the players, um, you know, still really good footy players. And, and I think, you know, gave us a, a, you know, a good preparation match that, that helped guys uh, get in the right uh, frame of mind for, for those more significant tests uh, later on in November. Speaking of Oxford, kind of a small world out there. Uh, your man Connor Kearns is is playing for the San Diego Legion. Are you uh, are you going to give him a little tour of the city when they come to town in May? <laughs> for sure, yeah. Connor's uh, Connor's a very good friend of mine, uh, terrific guy, and a great rugby player. So um, you know, thrilled that he's got an opportunity with San Diego. I think he he had some games from them last year and went really well. And uh, you know, it'd be no surprise to me if if you know kicks on again this year and. And, uh, you know, as a major contributor for that team. Um, but, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, to visiting him in, in San Diego, hopefully getting a tour of you know, Pacific Beach and sort of seeing what he's been up to. And then when he comes to uh, to Toronto, returning the favor. And and, and speaking of the, the varsity match specifically, I, I actually watched it again pretty recently. Uh, you were wearing 13 in that match. Um you know, you played a bit of center at Queens, but all of your your Canada caps have come on the wing, and and you were a wing at Yorkshire Carnegie. Do you see yourself primarily as a winger, or is there a chance we might see you playing a little bit in the midfield this season? Yeah, you know, I played uh, primarily thirteen at, at Queens, and you know, played actually quite a bit of twelve and thirteen at Oxford. Um, and you know, it's it's a skill set that I'm trying to add to to, to my repertoire, if you will. But um, you know, I sort of I guess I view myself as as a winger uh, with the ability to to play some some thirteen as well. But you know I sort of leave those those decisions up to um, you know above my pay pay grade in terms of in the coach's hands and and sort of wherever they think I'll be able to contribute best to the team um, is where I'm willing to play. So um, you know both for the arrows or or ever at uh, you know at the national team level uh, level again if I if I get the opportunity. Um, a very diplomatic response. You mentioned the 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 A League there while you were playing with uh, with Oxford. You got to actually play a couple of the Aviva A League games with Wasps just at the end of that that season. What did you think of the, the standard of rugby? Yeah, you know that was actually um, that was an amazing experience for me. Um, you know, beyond just being able to to suit up a couple times in the A League. Uh, I also got to actually train with uh, the Wasp first team sort of twice a week for, for two, two and a half months or so. And just being able to be in that environment, um, you know, they were just on the back end of the, the Lions tour. So I think there have been sort of six or seven guys in, in their camp. Um, I had just been on with the Lions the year before. So being able to you know, train with a guy like Elliot Daly, James Haskell, um, and see how they work on their craft and, and sort of approach the game on a, a day-to-day by, basis was was really eye-opening because, um, you know, those guys are, are world-class players. And, you know, I, I argue that we do have a couple of those sort of talents in, in the Canada setup as well. But, um, you know, to also see a different angle, I guess, on how they approach their uh, their game was, was really um, you know, enlightening and, and something that I really appreciated. Uh, so it was an awesome little stint, uh, little stint with, with Wasps. Right, so so then after that, you went to Yorkshire Carnegie. You joined them in in, in late August. Uh, played a few games in the championship. Uh, having experienced that training with the Premiership side, how would you compare that with what you saw in the championship? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the the A League is interesting because um, you know depending on the time of year, depending on the in- injuries on the squads, um, you know the sort of 
level can can vary considerably between the different clubs so i think you know a club like northampton i believe has you know, a much uh, deeper player base um and so they're they're putting together you know, some pretty quality outfits in that that a league um whereas wasps you know had, had a little bit leaner squad if you will and had some injuries towards the end of the season which is which is really um you know how my opportunity came up to play with them you know i thought a league was there's it's generally geared towards towards younger players really fast rugby really skilled rugby um and lots of guys get an opportunity to sort of throw the ball around it and show what they can do to coaches at their prospective uh prem club so you know, that was fantastic rugby um great experience the championship is is obviously um, you know the players are slightly more mature in terms of physical development um, and maybe as a result the tactics are, are slightly different. Uh, but again, you know I, I was really impressed with the with the level when I when I played in the league. Um, you know, there's some great matches and some really quality players in at Yorkshire Carnegie that I was lucky enough to to learn from and. You know, basically all the guys at, at Yorkshire or you know, vast majority of them had played in a Prem setup or played in a Pro 14 setup before. Uh, so being able to learn from their prior experiences and their knowledge of the game was something that, you know, I, I think has, has helped me grow as, as a player. You mentioned uh, the the lean squad of Northampton there. Maybe a quick shout out to Phil McKenzie and his lean, <laughs> lean squad. Um, so right around when you were... Uh, you were signing that deal with uh, with with Carnegie. Actually, the arrows were getting pretty close to to sealing up their MLR approval. Did you did you think about that option at all before joining Carnegie? Like, were you aware of that? Yeah, I mean, I'd actually I'd been lucky enough to to talk to the owner Bill Webb, um, you know, for the better part of the last year, I'd say, um, and was trying to sort of figure out, uh, you know, what was the what was the best opportunity for me. Um, in terms of putting myself in, in sort of the shop window for the World Cup, uh, you know, it's I'm pretty open that that's sort of my my personal uh, goal. My personal dream is to is to be able to represent my country at really what I think is is the pinnacle of the sport. Um, and so it was just sort of figuring out where is where is the best opportunity to keep on developing as a player. Um, and you know, through through I was lucky enough to be in the in one of the week long camps with with Canada in November for their preparation for the, the November tour. Um, and you know, through conversations with, with Kingsley Jones and, and with, um, you know, Mark Winokur and, and Bill Webb and stuff, you sort of was able to get to the conclusion that I thought, um, you know, applying my trade on, on this side of the pond would, would probably be the best opportunity for me. Um, you'd be able to have the opportunity to play with, uh, guys like Andrew Ferguson, Theo Sauter, um, Lucas Rumble that that you know, will be in the the mix for that uh, World Cup squad moving forward. Um, I, I hope will be uh, will hope will be beneficial. So that was really the the motivation for the move. And, and you know, additionally on top of that is just the fact that I have an opportunity to represent my hometown and and uh, you know represent the country more broadly in the MLR. Um, I think you know, there's a tremendous opportunity for all the players here to help build something. Um, that could be truly special for for years to come. So it was kind of you know two pronged personally, both the the World Cup opportunity, but secondly also being part of of what's built here at the at the Toronto Arrows. So was that originally part of the plan then when you went to Carnegie that you were going to stay with them until you know I think it was uh, November December early December kind of thing and then switch to the Arrows? Was that the the plan from the start? Uh, it wasn't explicitly the plan. I would say um, my my contract was there until uh, end of December. So there wasn't, you know, there was an opportunity to to move on to, to something else, and 
um, you know, it was, it was a decision and an option that I you know, thought about very, very thoroughly for, for a number of weeks. Because, uh, you know, credit to, to Yorkshire Carnegie, I think it's a fantastic club, great environment, really love the coaching staff and, and the guys. And, and personally, I was, you know, getting a great opportunity there in, in the championship. Um, but, you know, I thought for me personally at that point in time, uh, coming back home to, to be with the Arrows was, was the best decision. Were you uh, chumming around with Jake Ilnicki while you were over there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Jake's uh, Jake's a fantastic guy, and um, you know, it was his first season at, at Yorkshire Carnegie as well. So for us to be able to sort of navigate both Leeds as a city and, and the club together was uh, was you know something I'm definitely uh, thankful for. Yeah, we uh, I, I spoke to uh, Nick Savetta in one of the earlier podcasts, and he he had actually uh, stayed with with uh, Jake while they were playing together in Newcastle. And he uh, commented on how Jake's eating routine is very boring. So, you know, maybe you gave him some cooking tips or something before you left. But (laughs) um, so, so the world cup is still your goal. Uh, So are you, are you going to be doing any work like in the, I mean, you're back in Toronto, which of course is this Mecca of, of the financial industry in Canada. Are you going to be doing any work uh, in that at, at all while you're there or, or are you just going to be concentrating on rugby from now through to the World Cup? Yeah, I'm just going to be focused on on rugby primarily. Um, you know, I really want to pour everything I possibly can uh, into continuing to get better as a player over the next uh, nine months, ten months or so. Um, but, you know, I also have, uh, you know, a skill set that, that I built in a couple years of finance experience in, in downtown Toronto and then um, also with an MBA from from Oxford, and so I'm going to be using some of those skills to help the Arrows think about you know how do we actually build a professional franchise here, how do we get a sustainable business, um, creating a sustainable business. I think that's one thing that's you know as players we're, we're you know or I'm hoping to help, hoping to help drive that is sort of an owner's mentality amongst the players group because you know at the end of the day. Um, we got to make sure that this is a sustainable business if we want professional rugby to last in Canada. You know, I think there's some early signs if you look at the talent of a guy like Bill Webb or, or Mark Winokur that you know, it's really encouraging. You have some really talented people around this around this franchise, but again, there's there's all sorts of risk. Um, and, and so, you know, I think if if we have that kind of talent, but collectively, you know, everybody in the organization is on board to try and drive ticket sales, etc. Um, you know, hopefully we can get there to, to get a sustainable business uh, off the ground. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting topic. I mean, when we talk about professionalism in sport, it's more than just, you know, showing up and lifting weights and training. It's all the off-field stuff as well. Maybe we don't sometimes think about that as much. So, I mean, the environment as it is right now, I mean, it's still very, very new. You know, does does it feel professional? Does it have that professional feel to it right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's obviously like with with any sort of business that you're just getting off the ground there's you know the odd sort of um you know bump and and sort of obstacles that we have to overcome but i think i really credit the the coaching staff and and the ownership group here in terms of um you know how they've approached some of those those obstacles and challenges and how we've you know overcome them um and you know we're still you know tweaking things and, and finding our way but for the most part it's been a fantastic environment to be a part of um you know i think as as players we're getting supported tremendously um, and so I think we're absolutely thrilled with, with the program that we've um, you know, seen in front of us to date. And I think it's only going to get better and, and stronger and improve on itself. So um, you know, really, really good early signs. I think there's a, a great hunger in, in both the, you know, the staff and the ownership to do the right thing from, from players and make sure that we're trying to 
um, maximize the on-field product and the ability to develop uh, different individuals. So, um, yeah, I think we have the right attitude, and, and at least what I've seen in the business world, you know, sometimes that's at least you know the lion's share of, of getting where you want to want to go. So, I think culture and attitude definitely tick in the right boxes, and hopefully that'll um, you know help us build something that again is you know sustainable and, and becomes a you know hopefully a, a uh, you know a firepower organization in the uh, the North American rugby landscape. You know, you've got a, a pretty big obstacle playing wise or performance wise right off the bat eight games in a row uh, on the road to start the year you know that's a pretty hard slog mentally physically you know talking about that the culture and, and resilience you know is there anything you guys are doing differently to prepare for that mentally heading into that knowing that you're going to be pounding away for these eight weeks before you get back to home base yeah, you know, I think we we know that there's an emphasis on recovery for sure for these these next eight months. Um, those sort of those plane journeys, those being, you know, out of town uh, every weekend is definitely going to be taxing. So um, you know, we need to make sure that we're doing the the proper sort of body maintenance, looking after ourselves, making sure we're getting the right sleep hydration and and food fuel in us uh to make sure that our bodies can come through in in a decent way at the end of those eight weeks because you know we have another uh you know big eight games at home where we need uh we need bodies and guys to be still standing upright um but you know from a from a preparation standpoint you know i think there's just again you know great attitude and, and culture around you know big challenge but something that that everybody's excited for um you know at, at the end of the day you, it is i guess a big challenge to go play in all these cities but you can look at it the other way like what an incredible opportunity you can play professional rugby in north america you get the opportunity to go see all these amazing cities in in the u.s in terms of new orleans austin san diego new york like you know who wouldn't want that um you know i think it's it's uh you know again the boys are just looking at, at the opportunity and, and super excited for for what we have ahead of us and i think it could you know it could really be um almost a, a strength for us the fact that you know we get eight weeks together on the road um you know to just for sort of further solidify those bonds we have a couple new boys in the mix um and there's you know there's no secret those road trips when you're in the hotel together 24 7 uh, you definitely get to know each other better than than going to your own your own homes at night. So it could actually be um, you know a great thing for our season in terms of us getting together as a as a team at the beginning of the year and and then hopefully being able to um, you know use those those tighter bonds uh, uh, for the rest of the season. Right, you got some you know you have some interesting characters on there. Morgan Mitchell, I've been reading up on him, pretty interesting fella. And you know the South American yeah. guys, those guys would be good fun, I'm sure. Have you ever been to New Orleans? I never have actually. I'm I'm really looking forward to. It. I've uh, I've read a lot about the city. Obviously, it'll be a little bit uh, heartbroken there with with the Saints' loss on the weekend. But um, you know, hopefully, we can uh, go down there and sort of experience the city and and uh, put together a performance. All right. Well, I, I can't let you go without uh, without some predictions. So, first year out of the gates, how are the arrows going to do? Is this team going to make the playoffs? <laughs> put me on the the hot seat like that. Um, you know, I think I think we know that there's a significant challenge in terms of the competition. A lot of really good players uh, on the other teams. A lot of really good teams that you know have had been you know, going into their second year of, of being in the setup. Um, but but obviously our goal is is to be a, a competitive outfit. Um, you know, and we have confidence in ourselves that that we'll be able to put a good uh, good product on the field. So um, you know, definitely that's that's one of our goals, and we're going to be driving towards it. 
so so hopefully yes I feel like Chris Silverthorne has written the manual on that kind of response very well well rehearsed all right well thanks again for your time Dan really appreciate it uh best of luck this weekend enjoy New Orleans and uh we look forward to watching the progress you know with great excitement of the arrows this season Great. Well, th- thanks a lot for uh, for having me on, Brian, and, and being able to sort of share our perspective on, or my perspective on on the arrows. I really appreciate it. And you know, everything you've sort of done for for America uh, from a rugby perspective, you know, definitely doesn't go unnoticed. So thank you very much for your your efforts and your time. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate those comments. You know, I'm I'm really only here to entertain. Dan Moore, Canada winger, and now Toronto Arrows. And I'll let you in on a secret now. He will be starting in the number 14 jersey for the Arrows on Saturday. Not just the first Arrows game, but it's also the the first MLR game of year two. What an honor for, for the Arrows to play in that game. What an exciting time to be a rugby fan. You can find Dan on Instagram if that's your thing. Uh, Dan.ag.moore. And uh, I mean, it's really just pictures of him being great. So, you know, if you like feeling envious all the time, have at her do do what you want um, moving right along of the of the returning teams you know what i'm very interested in monitoring this season is austin elite there are so many new players and only a few very small number of of returning guys so you know it's kind of like an experiment down there they've had some they had some injury problems before the season last year kind of struggled and one of those players was one of their best players, U.S. Eagles hooker Peter Malcolm, who ended up missing the whole campaign, didn't play at all. Uh, you know, he's just about ready to make his comeback after months on the sidelines with a knee injury, and he joins us now from the great state of Texas. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you must be pretty excited to finally get a crack at Major League Rugby after, you know, sitting out the entire season last year. Um, yeah, unbelievably excited to finally get involved with playing high-level rugby again. Um, it's been a long 11, 10 months of surgeries and recovery and and just spending all my time in the gym. So uh, I'm excited to get to play some rugby again for sure. So was it a, a complete ACL reconstruction? Is that what you had? Yeah, so I uh, fully tore my ACL and had some damage to both my lateral and uh, medial meniscus. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty serious knee, knee surgery. So how did you actually injure yourself? Was that at, at the tail end of the of last year's ARC? Was it in training? Um, so it was the week I came back from the ARC tour. I, I probably was guilty of trying to come back from tour a little bit quick. I, I had the option to take that full week off and, uh, and thought I could train and got hurt just non-contact stepping and then uh, didn't, get, didn't get diagnosed correctly and then came back after a month and tore straight through it on after the third day geez well just uh i don't like hearing that didn't get diagnosed correctly i was just reading uh christian osberg's post on twitter there about his hamstring problems he's finally getting those fixed um so uh, the timing of that whole thing had to be extremely frustrating you're, you're captain of the selects at the apc and then you played in both the the november tests so it seemed like you had a whole lot of momentum behind you that had to be you know massively frustrating for you it was extremely frustrating at the time, um, but it's part of doing this as a as a job. Like injuries are going to happen. Like I had been relatively injury free from the time I started playing rugby when I was 14, even when I was playing football when I was younger. Like I had never been out for longer than a month before before this surgery. So I, you know, sports is going to get you eventually. You're going to play sports at like a high level 
so you know you got to take you take what you can from it you learn from it so i mean what do you do to occupy your time that whole time you know obviously you can't just do you yeah. do you know can you do line out throws anything like that do you do video analysis How, what do you do so um most of it was rehab focused i mean after i was able to move around again i was in the gym probably in the gym and at or at rehab probably three hours a day for a while there and that was mostly it was the was focusing on the rehab like i trust myself as a rugby player i know that i'll be get, be able to get back there mentally um, pretty quickly. It's come back pretty quick while I've been in, in camp. Still obviously got some rust to knock off um, as far as like defensively and positioning and stuff like that. But it was really the rehab and the getting strong again that, that I was really focused on. So so how's the knee now? And when are, you, are we going to see you back in the pitch? The knee is actually feeling great. I was fully cleared um, for contact for full activity um, on Friday, uh, this past Friday. And uh, now they're going to work me back in slowly, so I'm just doing hitting mostly bags and, and stuff this week, and I'm hoping to be back in by the third game, and then if not the third game, then the fourth game. I felt I felt very good this week, so I think we're going to be pushing it for the third game. That's good news. You know, long-term injuries can have a pretty significant effect uh, on body mass, you know. So, so how is your weight right now? Did you have to build yourself back up to front row size? Um, I actually didn't have a huge, um, problem keep keeping my weight on. I think the lowest I got during this whole thing was 229 and I usually like to play at 235. So, I mean, that's not a huge problem. I was lifting pretty much after two weeks out from surgery, I was lifting. Um, pretty much most of that's just to keep, uh, keep my sanity because sitting on the, like sitting on, on the chair in a chair for you know, hours at a time, and it's just not, it's really not what I'm wired to do, but, uh, so the, the weight thing really wasn't a problem, I've never really had a problem eating a lot either, so it really wasn't that, that, that part wasn't really a big deal. So, I mean, I, I imagine you have to have a little bit extra weight playing uh, hooker, of course, you're a flanker at Wheeling Jesuit, so who, who was it who really convinced you to move, to make that switch to hooker, I think you did it uh, right around, what, 2016 with Ohio, is that right? Yeah, I had gotten some some looks at Hooker um, in USA age grade stuff, but it had been mostly been playing flanker still. Um, but when I went to Ohio, um, the USA had called and talked to uh, our coaches at Ohio and said that they wanted me to switch to Hooker. So that's what I did. I mean, that's my goal all along was to play for the Eagles. So if that was going to be the way I was going to do it at uh, at Hooker and not at seven, then that's that's that was what I was going to do. Quickly on Wheeling Jesuit, your old teammate Max Lum is at Glendale this year. Do you have any special moves for him planned if you happen to meet in the scrum? Um, special moves? No. I just had planned to hit him really hard. <laughs> That's a, be some so, interesting. I'm excited, really excited for Maxie to be in the league. I mean, uh, I always thought when we were at Jesuit that he was, you know, if not the most talented player on our team, then right, like we were tied. Like, I. I there was a lot of times that I thought he was naturally a better rugby player than me. He's a very good rugby player. I'm excited that he, especially as a U.S. born talent, U.S. grown talent, that he's getting a chance um, to play in a high level environment. That'll be good to see. And yeah, in a, in a very good environment over there at, at Glendale. Uh, you've spoken about the problem of scrummaging in in 
American rugby in previous interviews with like Alex Goff. Uh, you talked about how much that it helped at Ohio working on it every day, especially with somebody like Jamie McIntosh around. Um, do you feel the scrums in pro while you were there got better as the season went on? I think the best scrummaging I did during pro was in the Ohio uh, was in the Ohio uh, scrum sessions on Wednesdays. Honestly, I, our front, the front row we had there um, was all but one of us either ended up capped or were capped at the time, and one of them was an all-black cap. Like that's obviously a very high-level cap. Um, so I've never really uh, felt as much pressure in in the game as I did during our scrum sessions on Wednesday, Wednesdays in pro. Well, yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, Fawcett and Demeca Speech and pretty Anthony Perry. Uh, I mean Angus McClellan. It was a it was a very serious scrum session every week. So uh, from from what you've been seeing in in MLR so far, you know, and maybe what guys like Chris Shade and uh, Mason Peterson have said to you or something, you know, uh, how are the MLR scrums from your view? Um, they were just really uh, up and down um, last year. Um, just a lot of guys' first taste of high level scrummaging. So, and the, last year, I don't think that, that a lot of teams were super deep in the front row. And I think that that has gotten, I mean, you've seen, everyone's seen the signings this year. You've seen the depth get better all across the board, but especially in the front row where you really need that depth. Um, so I think the quality will come up quite a bit. So you make a good point with the depth. Uh, one of my opinions on it, you know, aside from obviously, uh, you know, as you've said in the past, you know, just not having the quality coming up, you know, through high school and, and development. But at the top, for me, there seems to be a lot of utility front rowers around American rugby. You know, if you, if you look at the English Premiership, for example, probably 90% of the front rowers are, are really specialists. But over in, in America, we've seen you know, guys like Ali Khalifi, Anthony Perry, Tony Purpura, all playing both sides. You know, Cam Falcons, a hooker one week and a tight head the next. Uh, you know, at Austin last year, you know, Chris playing loose head and hooker almost every game. We had Mason playing both sides. Uh, Lerome White and Brendan Rams with you guys this year. So, I mean, that versatility is nice for the team. But when I think of the best scrummaging guys in, in the USA, I, I tend to think of guys like Paul Mullen and, and Patty Ryan who play tight head exclusively. Do you think it would be better if there were more specialists? It, and I think that that just really gets back to the depth is that when we have that depth, that'll allow people to be in their best position. Like most of those guys who had to move around simply had to move around because that they had to cover that for their team. They were the next best guy at doing that. That doesn't mean that's necessarily where they belong, but you know, you have to do what you have to do for, for your team. Like if shady has to play hooker and loose head in the same game, then that's what he's going to do, you know? But I think, with the depth that we're going to have here at Austin and across the league, guys are going to be able to specialize in their one position where they belong, which, yes, 100%, that will be much better. If you scrum at loose head for an entire season versus having to switch back and forth, that will make you a much better loose head than having to do both. Do you spend a lot of time working on the set piece on the scrum at training at Austin? Yes, uh, probably at least 30 to 45 minutes every day. Every day that we're in, on a non-off day, if, on a non-off day uh, lineouts or scrums will take up at least 30 to 45 minutes of the day. Well, so that's uh, that's good to hear. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're named in the Eagle squad for the ARC. Are, are Gary Gold and, and Dave Hodges and, and the staff good at keeping in touch while you're, you know, sidelined with long-term injury? 
I was really impressed with uh, with how well they kept track of me the whole time. Um, really down to Kevin, the uh, the head trainer, um, who was I was in contact with the most. But I spoke to uh, Dave Hodges uh, probably three or four times, maybe up to five, like while I was progressing through the injury. And that uh, that really helps as an athlete to know that they're still thinking about you while you're, you know, five months into a ten like a nine month recovery. Um, yeah, I was kept track of very well. Uh, had a lot of conversations with Kevin. Um, it was good. Very and, good. you know, I'm sure that you have kind of, uh, as you rehab, you have your own physical targets and so on. But as far as coming back into the side, uh, you know, Gary in interviews, he said he's very, uh, kind of stats based or, or he likes to have a good grounding in that. Right. So did, did you get specific performance targets for when you come back, you know, a, a certain number of rucks they want to see you hitting lineup percentage, that kind of thing. Um, I, well, the lineup percentage is the one that I know from the previous tour, which I believe was 90% or higher, which is just really, if you're going to be a test match hooker, 90% is the very bottom of what you should be hitting as far as uh, as far as your percentage. The rest of it, I believe that's information that I'll get when I get into camp. Having not been into camp for a year, um, I don't I, I don't know a lot of the new stats. I really only had two games under uh, under Coach Gold since uh, since I've been in. Like uh, he was in right before I got hurt, and I was in for two games. So I don't I don't know all the stats that he's looking for out of me, um, but I'm sure that that information will be given to me as soon as I'm in camp. So when you first broke into the Eagles, I mean, it was really yourself and, and James Hiltebrand, and then you know Big Joe was still kind of a prop slash hooker. He wasn't quite zeroed in on on hooker just yet. The, the stocks were relatively thin there. Um, you know, they were even looking at maybe switching Hanko to the front row. He had a little bit of time there with Denver. But so now you're coming back and you've got, you know, Dylan Fawcett, your old buddy from, from Ohio is qualified now. He's been capped several times. Pat Blair is in there. Pat O'Toole, Chad Goff, Alex Forster, uh, Capelli Pifoletti just got called up. Uh, Sean McNulty is coming over and he's either, you know, qualified now or, or very close on this uh, cumulative residency. So uh, all of a sudden there's a heck of a lot of competition you know, and that's that's a nice problem for for the coaching staff. But how, how do you feel about suddenly having to contend with another half dozen guys for your spot? That's exactly how it should be. Um, if we want to become a high level nation, if we want to become a top ten, top seven nation, that's the kind of competition that we should have at every position. So, I mean, obviously, it's going to make my job a little bit harder to get my spot back, but that is how it should be hard to get a test spot. So. For I am happy that my country is starting to produce players and have that many people, that many options in every position. Like, that's only good for us. Now, it's gonna, it is gonna make my job more difficult to get back and play well and, you know, compete with all of these guys who are a lot of high quality players in that, in that list. But I'm excited for it. Like that, that challenge has always pushed me to be a better player, um, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So here at Austin, you're, you're finally going to get a chance to play in this. How's your French coming along? You know, it's Thierry, the GM, Atlanta's coach. You got Mikhail and Timothy, the halfbacks. Do these guys all eat lunch together and curse everyone out on Francais? <laughs> um, I don't know because I still don't speak a lick of French. But um, everyone pretty much speaks pretty good English. Really, the only problem the – only, it's not really a problem. The only guy who doesn't speak English um, as well as their native language is our new tight head, Juan. And we have a bunch of Spanish speakers who speak both, so it's, it's really not much of a problem. 
right? You, you know, you're talking about that. Uh, you know, Austin is has really completely retooled this year. You know, there's really only about a, a dozen or so returning. I mean, even yourself kind of counts as a new player. You didn't play yeah. uh, last year. Didn't play one minute. So. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in also in the, the cultural aspect of this team. You've got, you know, a few South Africans. you got five South Americans. You're starting to collect Canadians now. Uh, you know, how, how do you make a team identity and mesh all these different sorts of characters together? I honestly think it's very easy to create a team identity when everyone is moving here. Everyone is new to a place. Um, then, you know, the first people you're friends with when you're here are the people on the team. So you, you all become very tight very quickly. And we all spend a lot of time together. Like, this is a fully professional environment here. Uh, we're all in from usually like 8.30 until 3. So you spend that much time with people, it's pretty easy to create a culture. Like, it's, rugby players are going to bond pretty easily. Like, it's, it's not rocket science that uh, we're pretty good at being social. So... And so you, you got all these new players from, from all over the place. The average age of the team is really only, I think it's about 24, might be 25. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if Andrew Suniulu is actually playing, planning on playing this year. I know he's just joined the staff uh, and you got, you know, Penny is the only other guy at, even at 30. Um, so what's your outlook on this season like? You know, you only had the one preseason match. How long do you think it'll take for the team to to really gel on the field, given all the, the newness and, you know, the youngness of this team? I really don't think that we're going to have a huge amount of problems gelling. Um, everyone that's come in has been just extremely professional and has gone about their work in, like, a very professional way. And it's honestly training have looked unbelievably good for the amount of new guys. Like you said, there's probably 10 guys left from from the team last year, and nine, not including me, because I didn't play a minute. So I really don't think there's going to be a huge amount of growing pains. Like, we've brought in – most of these guys who we've brought in are have played in test matches. Like, they're, they can come into a team – to, to come into one of those – into a test match team, you have to learn quickly. And we've had seven weeks – Seven weeks for most most of these guys is, you know, that's five weeks too long to learn. Like, we're not going to be struggling, I don't think. So with all these new faces around, uh, from the guys you haven't really seen up close before, which is probably a lot, uh, you know, is there anyone who has maybe surprised you? And I mean, in a good way, like you're looking at them and, and they're maybe even, even better than what your maybe your first impressions or expectations when they came in. Um. Somebody I've been really impressed with uh, and who got here very recently uh, is Rikus Swarp. Um, young guy, I think he's 22, uh, was, in the Shark, was in the Sharks Curry Cup team a couple times. Big, big man. I think 6'6", 265, and is so impressively explosive off the ground in the lineouts. Like, gives us another really good lineout option in a lineout that's pretty stacked with good lineout options. Um, he's one of the quickest off the grounds in the team and to be moving to moving that quick off the ground at 265 is just unbelievable yeah i was looking at some footage of him uh when that signing was announced he does look like a an impressive athlete and certainly some some of the fans in south africa had, had piqued their interest that they'd that he was uh headed over um one of the fun kind of tribal elements of rugby is is the so-called derby match you know uh, toronto and new york and boston when they all get started 
to get going. They've got kind of historic rivalries in other sports. So, it uh, obviously Texas. So we got two teams there. Do, do you guys actually get any more fired up for the games against Houston than you would for say a, a Seattle game? Like, does does it really matter? Is there really a rivalry there? I think it's going to take a couple years of the league before those rivalries really get like fired up. Obviously, the, you want to be the best team in Texas. You, there's only two teams here. There's, I think we might be the only state right now with two teams. You want to be the best team in Texas. Now, as far as an actual, real, like, active rivalry, it's going to take – it's just like the rest of the league, it's going to take years for those to grow. But they're still, you're still going to think of it as who's the best in, in the state. Yeah, I, I hear that Dallas is, is getting a little closer to picking up a franchise, maybe some talk of them actually coming in uh, next season. So maybe down the line, maybe a, a little, you know, a Lone Star Cup preseason tournament or something like that might be might be fun or, or something. But it, it's certainly very interesting. Um, how does the team feel about the move to Dell Diamond this year? Oh, everyone's super positive about that. I got my second cap at Dell Diamond. It is a beautiful place to play rugby. It's a wonderful field. Um, locker rooms will be some of the best uh, facilities in the league. Uh, I've, I mean, I, I've seen most of the stadiums that people play at, that we, that uh, most of the teams play at, and Dell Diamond is an absolutely wonderful facility. There's nothing I probably missed more while I was hurt than playing rugby in front of, you know, 5,000, 10,000. I believe when I played Ireland, we played in front of 25,000 people. That's the kind of stakes that you want to play rugby. You know, you want to be playing rugby in front of that many people. You want to be playing rugby in, in big stadiums because there's no other feeling like it. I haven't, I haven't had anything that, that really matches that as an experience. And I'm glad that we now have a home field that will give us that experience. You said that's a big positive. You know, pretty soon you'll have played both pro and MLR. So uh, for the players who have experienced both, you know, what's the vibe like right now with, with MLR? Does it feel like it's heading in the right direction? Yes. Um, everything's handled so, like, so professionally. Like, all our dealings with the league are very crisp. They're very, they're very clear with what they want from us. Um, all our dealings with the team – are very good as well. We get a lot of good. Our, all the communication lines are so much better than they were in pro, simply because we can actually communicate. Like it was very difficult to communicate, just because there was one or two guys running a whole league versus now. There's actual infrastructure in place that um, allows it to operate in a more professional way. Um, so it, it's definitely, and it's gotten better this year from last year, and it was pretty good last year in comparison. So that's uh, that's definitely a positive, and certainly from from the outsider's perspective, uh, it it looks a lot better, almost night and day, really. I mean, the fact that we're even seeing, you know, season two, you know, it was that, yes. you know, was that kind of gutting when you found out the pro wasn't going to continue at the time? Absolutely. I mean, it was it was a horrible feeling, honestly. Like I had put my whole life into becoming, like, getting that first professional contract. Wherever it came, even if it was, you know, it's Columbus, Ohio. I'm, I was just so happy to be a professional rugby player. Like, that's what I'd wanted to be since I started playing rugby when I was 15, 14. Um, and that was, it was a horrible experience. But that was tempered by right when I got that email, I got the other email that I was selected for my first ARC tour. <laughs> so it could have been worse, I suppose. <laughs> Well, you, you you made it through the uh, the rapids as it were. So you actually grew up in in Florida. Um, 
Do you think a team could survive there, an MLR team? It would just it just depends on where they do it and how they market it. Um, Florida, Florida is a very fun-loving environment, so you'd have to market it as a real party spot. Um, I think if you made it, if you put it in Miami, there's a lot of good rugby culture in Miami. Um, it would just be so expensive, cost of living-wise, to do it down there. It's already hard to do harder to do that in the higher uh, higher expense markets. That I, I think there's a community down there to support it, but it would be logistically difficult. Hmm. So maybe this team that's coming into Atlanta next year is a, a, a better starting point to see how things go. Yeah, I think I I'm I think that's a very good place for a rugby team, and with the uh, direct line they'll have um, to the you know belt of talent that is Life University, hmm. um, they're going to have a real a real serious squad I think from the get go. You know that'll be it'll be interesting when they come in. You know we've got the two Texas teams. You know talk of maybe Dallas as well. Then you've got New Orleans and you've got Atlanta all kind of down there on that that southern line. So some new rivalries for sure and of course as you say you know lots of guys will have played with and against some of those life guys all through their collegiate career so so looking at this season you've, you've got five home games to start uh seven of the first nine games actually are in texas so uh, does the team have a specific number of wins in mind or is it is it just kind of one game at a time um we have some some goals as a team that uh we certainly would like to hit in those first five home games um, I'm not really going to get into team goals that are discussed within the team in an interview, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, I mean, obviously your goal is to go into every single game saying that we're going to win, especially at home. Um, with the amount of travel you're going to do it's, in this league, it's going to be hard to win it. It's going to be even harder to win away. So it's extremely important that we pull a couple of wins out here in these first five home games. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot now before before I let you go. Prediction time. Let's assume Austin makes it to the semifinals. Who's your pick for the other three teams? Um, I would go Seattle, uh, Glendale, and NOLA. All right. All right. Well, we'll see how you do. Uh, so thanks again for giving us your time. Much appreciated. Uh, best of luck with the recovery. I'm Excited to see Peter Malcolm version 2.0 soon in MLR. So uh, and try to keep those Canadians out of trouble down there. I will do so, man. Thanks for having me on. Peter Malcolm, Austin Elite and U.S. Eagles hooker. You can find him on Instagram at Jam 8 as in the number 8. Hopefully he'll be back sooner than later. Uh, so right about now is usually when I throw to our own Paul Tate, but he is currently fighting the forces of darkness in South America or, you know, possibly in hiding or something. I don't know, but hopefully we'll have him back soon, maybe in time for next week, but, but we're not done yet. We need to get a neutral party in here to talk about some of the overarching themes of the upcoming season. And I can't think of many people more qualified to talk about this stuff than my next guest. 10-time national champion as coach of the Penn State women's side, two World Cups coaching the women's Eagles, resident guru on the MLR kickoff podcast with Dan Power, and now a regular in the commentary booth for MLR games, Mr. Pete Steinberg coming at us from Colorado. 
Pete, thanks so much for giving us uh, some of your time doing this incredibly busy week. You know, it's kind of the storm before the storm almost. We got Major League Rugby season two coming up. It, it almost sounds like a, you know, season two of a sitcom or something when you say <laughs> it like that. But so so you're in Seattle this weekend for for the Glendale, the big match there, the 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 repeat of the final of last year. That's going to be uh, incredibly exciting. You know, do you have a special watch that keeps track of the time zone that you're in? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't um my uh my I, I travel for work and now I get to travel for rugby. One of the interesting things, and my wife and I had this discussion coming into this spring, is that you know when I retired from coaching after the 27 Women's World Cup, the 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 idea was I was going to travel less, but then this opportunity with um, commentating for Major League Rugby popped up and. Um, now I'm actually traveling more. So uh, um, generally, it's sort of the bags under my eyes determine where I am most of the time. Are you a big coffee drinker or, the, or you know, do you, that five I, hour energy stuff? How do you keep no, going? No, I'm, I am a I'm a big coffee drinker. And one of the one of the great pleasures of traveling is always finding the local coffee shop. So you always want to find, you know, I, I can do I can do a Starbucks and I can do a Pete's coffee and, you know, that sort of stuff. But I love to find the local place that grinds its own coffee and roasts its own coffee kind of stuff. And uh, I'm always on the search for a good, uh, a good cup of coffee, but that's generally what keeps me going. That's funny. You know, I, I was talking to uh, Kate Zachary, of course, in the women's Eagles, uh, just in one of the earlier podcasts. And she was talking, I asked her about coffee. Apparently she's being into that. And she was saying how she likes to bring her own on these, these road trips and have this little coffee club. So that's interesting. Maybe something you've bestowed upon them. Um, <laughs> You know, so obviously that the big focus this week is on is on MLR. But you know, I would consider you one of the experts on on women's rugby in the USA. So I thought it would, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you at least a couple questions pertaining to that. You know, there is a kind of a method to my madness here. I am leaning towards MLR. We've seen um, you know collegiate standards rise. The women's Eagles are consistently around the top five in both sevens and fifteens in the world. Uh, England now has twenty eight full time players. Uh, the Premier Fifteens over there is is moving towards becoming fully professional. I, I, obviously, I don't expect the USA to follow suit. Uh, you know, anytime in the next few months. But you know, do you think there's any chance in the future we might see some kind of women's MLR, either just as you know, kind of um, semi pro amateur kind of sides built on the the program uh, the teams that we've seen already or, or is it still a long long ways away from that in the usa well i mean i'd start by saying that major league rugby is probably a long way away from really being on um a long-term footing it's still a startup itself but i i do i do think there's value in um creating something uh that has some semi-professional base the challenge that we have in the US is that we don't have a lot of infrastructure. So even in the WPL, you know, my, you know, my view is that, so what, you know, I always think about, do we have clubs or do we have teams? And the way that, you know, the difference is that is the president of the team, a current player. And if they're a current player, then it's not really a club. It's mm -hmm. really just a team. Um, and there are a few clubs that are run very well um, in the US, but probably not enough. And those clubs don't have much infrastructure. I mean, outside of Glendale, I don't think there are any women's clubs that have a field and a stadium that, that they can play in. So I think we're a ways away from, from being semi-pro. Like, I think what's actually going to happen is um, both the uh, um, French league and the um, English league are going to have more money coming into it. We'll probably see some of the 
best players in the U.S. start um, heading over there a little bit like happens on the men's side. And what I would like to see is maybe, you know, 10 years from now, uh, Major League Rugby able to sort of begin to develop a women's program in conjunction with it. But I think I think we're a long way away. If you look at sort of the struggles that um, the women's soccer professional leagues have had in the States and you imagine the millions of kids that play soccer and the exposure that they have, it's still something that isn't sustainable for them. So I think in the U.S., I think we're a ways away. On the coaching front, you know, we've seen one of your World Cup players, Tiffany Faye, uh, being signed as a coach by New York. You know, was was that a surprise to you? Do you think there's a chance we'll see more of that in the future? MLR teams kind of casting their net a little wider and, and looking for, you know, talented women coaches or just anybody, I guess, who's who, who's got the qualifications? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a great believer in mixed coaching staff. So um, when when I coached the Mid-Atlantic men, I always had um, a, a, at least one woman assistant coach. I, I, I think that there's value to that. I, I know that James English um, was part of the uh, um, women's pathway when I was the uh, um, Eagles coach. And I think that's how we came across Tiffany. I think Tiffany has a huge amount of value. I think what's most exciting about the game in the U.S. is not just in Major League Rugby, but in the um, collegiate game, there are now professional coaching pathways for former players. And so there's you, you can see the recent generation of retired players that have um, you know stepped into those collegiate ranks, like a um, you know a Farrah Douglas or. Um, a Mel Denham, you know, these are these are people, Stacey Bridges, who's still playing, but is now a professional coach. I think that's one of the most exciting developments. I would like to see more major league um, rugby teams adopt a more progressive attitude, but um, I'm not going to hold my breath. Mm, yeah, interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm very keen to see how that moves along. Really great for her. Also, we're going to see Haley Slaughter, uh, I think, refereeing one of the games this year. So, Certainly, we're seeing some women start to sneak in there, and of course, they're, they're such big supporters, you know, uh, of the game. So it, it just seems strange that we've kind of uh, underdeveloped, I think, women's rugby in North America overall. But um, you know, you well, I think I, I think sorry, just to, um, just one thing, Brian. I, I think what's interesting is that there are probably more coaching positions, full-time professional coaching positions in the women's game than there is in the men's game in the U.S. And I think that's that's one of the things that, you know, maybe with Major League Rugby and, and, the, and more expanded coaching staff, that is, as that expands, that's going to change. But if you actually want to be a pro- professional coach, having experience coaching women is the easiest way to do that. And, and I think those professional roles are going to continue to grow in the college game. So that's going to be one of the interesting things that we need to watch as, as the game at that level um, continues to develop. Now, we've seen... Uh, speaking of, of, of the connections with, with collegiate rugby, you know, we, we've seen a number of All-Americans jump into MLR squads this year. Certainly New Orleans has been very progressive in that regard. Some other teams maybe uh, not as much. You know, we're going to be expanding pretty soon next season. we got Atlanta, Boston, Washington, D.C., you know, maybe Dallas. So there could be, you know, 13, 14 teams really soon within a, a year or two, you know, uh, you know, assuming this all moves ahead as as kind of planned. You know, how much are we going to need these college players to step up? I mean, what kind of a role does collegiate rugby really play in developing the players for Major League Rugby? Oh, I mean, I think it has to be critical. I mean, it's the American pathway. Uh, and I think that it's um, Major League Rugby's timing is good because I think if you look around the collegiate landscape, you see more and more 
programs able to provide sort of this daily training environment that's really high performance. I mean, I know at Penn State, it's where I coached um, for a long time. You know, they're there, they've got nutritionists, they've got, they're in the weight room three or four times a week. They've, they've got a full-time professional coaching staff. You can see that at Lindenwood and at Life. Like, you know, if you go back even five years ago, you would look at Cal Berkeley and say, well, they're probably, they're, they're, the, they're the one team, but now there's 10, 15 teams um, and there are even these small colleges. I mean, one of the interesting developments is rugby is becoming useful for admissions. So places like Lindenwood use rugby to attract new students to their campus because in the U.S., the population of students is dropping. And so I think you're going to see more and more varsity programs. And I think it's going to be critical. I, I mean, you know, there's a big sort of wringing of their hands of, of, of the quality of players that are out there and, and whether they can step up. I, I think those players are there. I think it's going to be a little rough. Um, I think, you know, it's going to be a challenge. I think that the competitive balance that we saw in the first um, season is not going to be true in the second season. I think there'll be some teams that do struggle um, and, and, and that'll be, and that's partly due to the playing base. But I think, the college development is already on a path to be able to become that feeder. Um, and I think that's going to be really critical. And, you know, you see teams developing their academies that will also be able to feed in. And I actually think the ideal is when these teams can partner with universities that can provide both the high level environment and the quality education. And in those partnerships, will be able to um, feed their teams in the future. Is there a decision? I mean, we're not we're not quite there yet financially, but is there a decision for some of these players, you know, to make? We've seen, um, for instance, Mason Peterson really jumped into professional rugby at a very early age, uh, leaving that collegiate environment. Is is there a decision for these guys early on in their careers, maybe after one or two years of college, to actually jump to MLR if they really think they're going to be uh, a professional rugby player? Is there an advantage to getting in that earlier rather than staying in the collegiate program? So I, I think that there's it, it's, so a lot of that depends on where you are, right? And so there are a lot of um, players that pick up the game in college that might be in programs that are still very much in the club sports ethos. Maybe they have a coach, maybe they don't have a coach. You've got some players they pick up. They, they were good athletes. They may have been cut from a varsity sport, and they want to play high level rugby. That's the guy that may end up saying, you know what, I you know, I'm not getting what I need to develop here, so I'm gonna go to a major league rugby team. But if you're at Cal Berkeley or if you're at a life or you're at a Penn State or one of the Ivy League schools like Dartmouth, I mean, you're getting the development that you need and you're getting the education, which is really critical. The money's not worth it for you to jump. So I think as long as you're getting as, a, as an athlete and as a player, the develop, development you need, my advice would be to stay where you are. But there will be some players that come from programs that don't have that support. And for them to not be left behind or to not miss the window, right, that happens when you're 22 or 23, Major League Rugby might be an attractive option for them. So the import uh, rule they've got right now, we've got uh, 10 import cards uh, are handed out to each team. And um, it's an interesting uh, system they've got. They can trade these cards. They can, you know, uh, for instance, Austin is going to have 13 import cards this year. They've acquired uh, a couple from other teams. They made a trade last year with Pakiafu sending him to Utah and they got one. So, but there'll be, there's 90 import cards across to fill in this. You know, do you think that 
that that number is about right? Do you think the prevalence of import players uh, takes away from the league at all, or is this just kind of a necessary evil to build up that standard of play while we build up uh, the collegiate feeder system? Well, so I think there's a there's a, there's a couple of really interesting thoughts about this because you know I think it's interesting that we talk about um, bringing in professional players from overseas as a negative, like in the long term. So. You know, and, and I think that's because there's this focus that the goal of Major League Rugby is to create a winning USA or Canadian national team. And, you know, to me, that's a really interesting question. Now, I certainly think that the, the national teams will become more competitive and will become better because there's a professional league. But it's not clear to me that, the that you know, so, so if you said, well, you know, we, we need foreigners to come in, non-qualified players to come in and, um, and, and play, or we cannot have that and the league isn't going to grow. What choice would you make? Hmm. And, so, and, and, and so I think there's enough space for, for 10. 10 seems to be the right number for me. I mean, if you think about you've got squads of sort of somewhere around 35 to 45, you've got 10 players. If you think about your 23s, and, and I think that's there's still enough to go there. I think what would what to me is more interesting is is to let the economics drive it. In other words, it's going to be cheaper for you to be able to develop your athletes locally, to build relationships with universities. So those players come to you than it is to get overseas players. And so therefore, I think that you could actually just say, let the let let the economics drive it. And and it would be. It, I think it would work out. Um, I think 10 is fine. Um, uh, I think as we continue, you know, we might need to um, have, uh, you know, either expand that or at least let the expansion teams have some extra foreign players. We don't yet have the quality of the players that we need in the um, in the US. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have is actually, you know, most 22 year olds when they come out from college are not good enough to play in Major League Rugby, even though they could be. Because the collegiate game is not competitive enough. I mean, if you play for Life University, there's probably one game a year that you're actually not sure if you're going to win. Right? That's it. And so, and so the question is, how do we take that 22-year-old and how do we give them the experiences that allow them to develop so we don't need as many foreign players in the future? And I don't know that we have an answer to that. I mean, Houston obviously has developed the West Houston team and, and you know, there's the Seattle Saracens and there's, you know, Ombak and... In, in San Diego. And so some of these teams are there, but is that division one going to be enough to really bridge it for those 22 or 23 year olds? I don't think it is. And so that's going to be an interesting question to be able to fill those slots in the future. I was talking to Peter Malcolm earlier about uh, last year, we saw kind of the dearth of, uh, of really quality front row players. And we've seen a lot of imports come in there, but I, I think for me, the, the biggest spot is, is, is the number 10, our fly half situation. Um, Really, there's no uh, first choice U.S. born fly halves across the league. You know, Ben Seymour was born in Argentina. Will McGee, England. Uh, you know, J.P. Eloff is South African. You know, we'll see if Will Holder might be the only guy who gets a, a start wherever he ends up. We're not quite sure wh which team he's going to be on yet. You know, or maybe uh, uh, you know, even Nick Feeks, the All American down at Nola, is Australian. So you know, there's three New Zealanders at Utah. Obviously, we have to bring these players in from somewhere. Um, being a halfback yourself, why is it so difficult to find these players in American rugby? Oh, I think it's all about um, picking up the game early 
And then having, I, I think the biggest challenge we have in US rugby is that at every level, we don't, uh, we're not, we don't have um, competitive competitions. I would say on average, the American rugby player steps onto the field and knows if they're going to win or lose 80% of the time. And so when you look at a position as critical as fly half, you say, well, if I know that, um, that we're going to win, then I actually am, I am not tactically tested, right? And we see this in the US by the lack of real quality kicking fly halves, right? There's, not, there's a real challenge where we don't develop kickers. And it's not that they can't kick. All of these guys played soccer growing up. It's actually because they, um, it's actually because they don't have to kick. Either they're down by, either they're up by 40 points or down by 40 points. And so having a kicking game doesn't help you win in most of the game. So I think the challenge that we have is we don't put up, we don't put um, our players in, in a high pressure competitive environment where their skills get tested, where they have to use all of the skills they have. And that's why you might see players grow up playing 10, but when they get to that next level, they end up moving to 12 or to 15 because when they, even though, even, even though we've started now picking up the game at 11 and 12, right. Or some even younger, they're not playing in the environments that require them to develop the all round skills as 10. So I think, I still think we're, we're a ways away from creating some domestic 10s. You know, uh, an, another aspect to the import thing is, is the officials, the match officials. And of course you, you've done a bit of refereeing recently as well yourself. Uh, you know, last year we saw kind of, I, I think there was mixed, uh, mixed reviews on, on the officials. I, I think for the most part it was, they were okay. Um, but this year we're going to see quite a few coming over on exchange. Last year we had uh, Adam Leal coming over from the RFU. This year we got, for instance, Ben Krause coming in from South Africa. How how important is it to get that you know that standard of officiating up as well as the level of play? Well, you know, so I think this is one of those really interesting questions, which goes back to like what's for the long term benefit of the league. What needs to be true, and what needs to be true this year is um, we need a, an exciting game that the non-rugby fan will enjoy watching. So, you know, sometimes if you watch the Premiership, I would not describe it as, you know, especially in sort of like this time of year in the Januaries and Decembers in the UK, you would not call it an exciting game that a non-rugby fan wants to see. So I'm actually less concerned about the quality of play and I'm more concerned about the game being open and concerned that the officials do not decide the outcome, right? I, I see, I, I think we should have the same view of the officials as we do as the players, which is like some of these guys are in development, the league's in development. We should, um, you know, have some empathy for the role that they have. We should want to see them improve from game to game, um, just like we would for the players. But for me, as long as the officials are not deciding the outcome of the game, I'm gonna be happy with it because we don't want that to be the story. What I want is an American to turn on Major League Rugby because they're probably just going to be scanning through their cable and they come to CBS Sports and they're like, wow, let me watch this a bit. And then at the end be like, wow, what an exciting, great, dynamic game. And if we can get there, then we can be successful. I mean, I, I, you know, if you talk to anyone in the MLR, they'll, you know, the challenge they have is that the tr rugby traditionalists do not want the same thing as the casual American rugby fan. And there aren't enough rugby traditionalists 
in North America for Major League Rugby to survive. So we have to be about explaining the game. We have to be about a dynamic game. We have to be about, um, you know, getting the stories about the players right and all those sorts of things. So, you know, I do have a concern about the officiating um, because I, you know, I know that it's going to have an impact on the game, but I think, you know, we have to see this as a startup and, and, you know, as long as they're improving and, and, and continuing to work on their game, um, I think the, I think we'll be fine. Well, uh, Pete, you know, I could sit here and talk about a million different things with you all day, but I know you're a busy guy. You got things to do. So, uh, I'll give, I'll leave this kind of an open question to end. Is, is there one aspect, you know, production, the, the, the players, the teams, the new teams, anything, what is there any one thing this coming up this season in particular that you're most looking forward to kind of in uh, our, you know, experiment season two coming up? Well, I mean, I think first of all, we should, we should just recognize that um, we're about to, um, you know, knock down a new barrier for North American rugby, right? So we are now at season two of a professional rugby league, which is a first. And so I think, I think we should recognize that. The thing that's going to, I think is going to be um, most interesting for me is to, you know, and I, I always think about this as a coach is to um, watch the teams and how they adjust throughout the season. I mean, you've got the Toronto Arrows who have two seasons, one where they're all away and one that they're all home um, to be able to be aware of these, of the teams traveling like long ways, how to manage that. It's a much longer season. I think watching how coaches handle that with player rotations, how they handle that with development of their approach to play. If you, if, you know, if we're really beginning to see teams adjust what they do relative to the opposition, I mean, to me, I'm looking for an, a new level of um, player management and um, approach to play. And, and that's what I'm most excited to see. So, you know, we're going to start off with Seattle versus Glendale. They played each other three times last year. Um, a lot of turnover in the Glendale team, not as much turnover in the Seattle team, but coaching turnover in the Seattle team. So to me, it's going to be really interesting to look and say, are we going to see a replica of last year or are we going to see something new? And um, I'm hopeful that we'll continue to see some innovation on the field as we see innovation off the field. So many interesting storylines to follow this season. Well, thank you so much for your time, Pete. I know you've got to run, so we'll let you go. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up uh, later on in the season and talk more about this stuff. Absolutely, Brian. And, and for all of your listeners, I just have to say that the America's Rugby News site is the place that I go for my news on Major League Rugby. So anytime I can jump on your podcast, just ask. Pete Steinberg, he's uh, he's more of a Twitter guy, so you can find him there at PJ Rugby Nine. He's worth a follow. Uh, of course, also check out the MLR Kickoff Podcast. There's a season preview episode that came out a couple days ago, and there should be another uh, a weekend preview coming out uh, later today. It might be out now. I'm not sure. I haven't checked. Um, uh, I, I should also give a shout out to Aaron Castro. He's the producer and uh, chief malcontent of that show. Also part of the Earful of Dirt podcast. That one's all about MLR on. Monday nights. Check that one out for some entertainment. And you can listen to Pete's commentary on the CBS Sports Network Game of the Week on Sunday. The Seattle Seawolves versus the Glendale Raptors. What a game that is going to be. You know, I can't wait to see how Glendale deals with the Seattle scrum this year. They had some real problems with that last year, so we'll see what happens there. And, and by the way, you know, some of you may be wondering what I was alluding to on Twitter earlier. Seattle has another interesting situation this season. Anton Moolman was supposed to come in from South Africa to be their head coach. His visa has been rejected. 
So you think I'm going to say Phil Mack again, but no. They have somehow come up with a replacement on short notice. Richie Walker, the former USA Women's Sevens head coach, He's been with Atavis for a long time. He is going to step up and take over the head coach role. Now, I don't know the specifics of why Anton's visa didn't go through, but we all know the predicament that the uh, USA government is in right now. So, you know, let's hope they uh, they sort that out soon. I'm hearing there's some other uh, visa problems with some players going on right now too. So, you know, kind of a frustrating time. But uh, certainly wish uh, Richie all the best there in Seattle and, and r- really great news that he is stepping up there. Uh, Toronto versus New Orleans on Saturday to start things off. This will be broadcast on Game TV in Canada. I've had lots of people ask if it will be streamed as well, and I can tell you that it will, and you can find that streaming link on the Arrows Facebook page. And some other news for you. I found out this morning that there will be an MLR team that is not Toronto with a Canadian captain and that team is the nola gold eric howard has officially been named captain for the season the canada hooker congrats to him i'll have to try and get him on here at at some point during this season that's great to hear again for canadian fans maybe we'll tune in there hubert biden's also down there kyle bailey playing for them Uh, saturday evening peter malcolm won't be on the field but austin elite will be hosting the Houston Sabercats in the first big Texas Derby of the campaign. That will be on Facebook as well. Austin with a couple of Uruguayans who will probably debut. Uh, Andres Villaseca and Juan Echeverria. Uh, Houston will be without three their, uh, three Uruguayan forwards, but they're uh, on ARC duty right now. But scrum half Santiago Arata will be playing. And he's my preseason pick as the top scrum half in MLR this season. So definitely check that one out. Sunday, another page is written in the history books. Rugby United New York travels to San Diego to play the Legion at Torero Stadium. The first official MLR game for New York. You know, will Ben Foden be suiting up? Hmm, we will see. And a quick word on one who won't be. I'm I'm sad to say that Seamus Kelly will no longer be playing for New York this season. The former Eagles World Cup center has been forced to retire with a back injury, and that's a, a real shame. But it opens an opportunity maybe for Samu Smith, a very exciting young prospect who's who's come in. But yes, very sad news about, about Seamus Kelly coming through New York. Uh, I'm expecting some kind of a, an official announcement for them imminently. And, and one last word. This one goes out to, to all the MLR teams who may or may not be listening. Please, please, please get your team lists out on time. Tomorrow morning, this Friday, would be just lovely. You know, I, I'm going to make it my mission this season to be a pain in the backside for teams who are slacking in the communications department. And there are a couple already. So throw us a bone, folks, for everybody's sanity. Get us those team lists as, you know, on time, early, uh, so we can talk about these games and really build the hype for this season, please. There you go. That's it for me. Job done. Major League Rugby Season 2 coming at you. I'm Brian Ray, America's Rugby News Forever. Enjoy your rugby weekend.